Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Another beautiful Sunday. We come together to uh, get in God's word and greet one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have given us life. Um, Lord, help us to glorify you with our lives. Um, may we honor you. Uh, Lord, as we come to this passage, we pray that you will convict us of any sin in our lives. May we turn from it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you've been on social media and you saw that someone is now in a relationship and everyone likes it and comments, says, congratulations. Well, today our discussion is going to answer the question, what is the status of your relationship with God? Are you in a position of grace or judgment? And so we're going to discuss the positions of the proud and the policies of God. And so let me quickly recap uh, last week, if you remember, James challenged us with that question. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source of strife? And we learn that, yes, it could be me. I could be the problem. It's because of my sinful pleasures and my pride. We also discussed the steps of solution, right? Uh, they were having an issue because they were not getting what they wanted. And what was the answer that James was giving them? Well, you have not asked, right? You haven't prayed with right motives. So the key was to pray, keep praying, and pray rightly to become Christ-like. That is the solution to strife. And so before we get into our text, I want us to see the big picture of these three messages. So last week was the start of the three-part series here. Uh, we began with the problems and pleasures of the proud. Today we're going to discuss uh, the positions of the proud. And then next week we're going to hear about the plea to the proud. So it's all about these people that are prideful, they're arrogant, they think they're in control, they're not wise like they think they are. No, actually they are foolish and they need to repent. And so this is really going to be the setup to next week where he's going to have those ten imperatives and saying, Stop doing this, right? Submit to God, resist the devil, humble yourself, all these different things. And so uh, we already discussed what's wrong with them. They're sinful pleasures, right? They just want what they want. They don't want God. And today we're going to discuss what that means. If you continue in that path of sin, we're going to see what position they'll be in. Of course, that is the biggest problem they have. God's wrath is upon them if they do not repent. And then next week, like I said, we're going to get into the solution to that. What are you going to do knowing that you're in such a position of wrath upon you because of your sin? We'll see what James tells the proud. All right, let's get into our text. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're in James chapter 4. We'll be in James chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Let's read. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so in this verse, we observe yet another challenge from James with this question. We also will discuss the three main positions of the proud, and they are not positions any of us want to be in. So we notice this challenge again from James. All right, so we know where strife and conflict come from. But what about um, this, this challenge? Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Right? There's this truth about spiritual adultery. And so don't you know? And the question we can ask ourselves, 
do we know what it's like to follow God and what it's like to follow the world? And so I want to hear from you. What are some examples of people following the world? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Well, they, they value the things the world values, mainly fame and fortune. Very good, very good. They value the things the world values, mainly fame and fortune. Yeah, we'll look into that a little bit more. How do you know you're following the world versus following God? What are some key things you might be doing if you're following the world? Remember, it's that corrupt world system, the one that doesn't want to do anything with God. So think of it this way. If I'm following the world, I'm really following my sinful pleasures. I'm doing what I want to do, and I have no regard for what God wants. So that's key. Um, in the book of James, we have some key uh, examples if you know you're following the world. The first one, remember, if you think you're religious but do not control the tongue, uh, you're a hypocrite, you're deceived. So if you do not control the tongue, if you just let it out all the time because I got to tell him uh, how I feel about this and I'm just going to yell it at him or maybe in the car. You get really upset at someone and you pull over, you know, you flip the finger or something. You don't control, right? You don't have self-control. Number two, you don't care for the needy. Uh, we saw that in James 1.27, um, true religion, pure uh, undefiled religion is to care for the orphan and widow in their distress. And so if you're not caring uh, for people, maybe it's just an elder, elderly person in your family that you're like, ah, that's not my job. I don't got to worry about my grandpa or grandma. Uh, you're following the world there, right? You're following your comfortability. And then lastly, uh, in the book of James, are you partial, right? Are you selfish? Remember, uh, the spokesperson who favored the rich over the poor, is that something that you have in your life, right? You're following the world if you're doing that, um, putting, uh, you know, a preference on, on a speci specific race or whatnot. Or if you're just being selfish, um, it shows that you have that bitter jealousy in you. So those are just examples throughout the book of James that you're following the world. But then what? How do you know if you're following God? Right? There's this challenge. Do you, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? And so the challenge is, if you're loving God, we see there's evidence of your faith. We see that you have this heavenly wisdom and that you really do care for the orphans. You really do control the tongue. You really do uh, uh, want the best for others and not yourself. Right? That's evidence that you're showing um, that you are following God. All right, so uh, we move on here to positions of the proud. Now, there's three main ones in our text in verse 4. Adulteresses, friends of the world, and enemies of God, right? We're going to see some biblical examples of just how damaging these positions can be. Um, but just to let you know right from the beginning, there's, it's not that there's going to be no hope, right? We're going to be hearing these positions, and you're going to be like, wow, that, that, that is a really bad... Um, outcome for these prideful people. And, and it would be if there wasn't any hope. We're going to get to that a little bit later, though. So let's tackle the first one here, adulteresses. Now, spiritual adultery, right? I need to quickly mention about this being a metaphor, right? Um, many times you read the Bible and you just look at it and say, adulteresses, I'm an adulteress. Oh, I committed, but I didn't commit adultery. Well, we need to understand there's figurative language. And so this is a metaphor, and it adds to last week, if you remember, I brought up that I, I thought the interpretation of murder was figurative um, because you're hating your brother committing murder in the heart. And so here, I think it just adds that we're seeing that there's a spiritual adultery. And why does James do this? I believe he's bringing up the Old Testament because uh, it's a Jewish audience, right? And so he is showing them throughout the Old Testament of how 
You see Israel, they commit a spiritual adultery, and guess what? You're doing it right now with your many sins and many idols you're worshiping. And it might not be physical idols like they did with the Baals and all those different uh, images, uh, and we'll see a little bit uh, in Ezekiel, but you're still doing it if you're putting other things before God. And so let's, uh, let's look at some examples here. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, uh, right before Daniel... Now, if you read this whole chapter, I mean, it's filled with this language of spiritual adultery and how you've cheated on God and compromised in your relationship with God. But I want you to just listen to a couple of verses here just to get the idea here of how Israel was committing spiritual adultery. Look at verse 17 in chapter 16. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold, talking about God's gold, and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Right? Harlot, prostitute, um, adulteress. Look at verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Where your harlot trees so small a matter. So, yeah, that's what they did in these pagan times and probably still today in different locations of the uh, world. We see that they were sacrificing idols to Molech, right? They were uh, killing babies uh, in worship of their false gods. And just imagine the people of God, uh, Israel, uh, meeting these other nations and saying, yeah, that seems like a good thing to do if it means fame and fortune, if it means prosperity in the land, let's do it. Uh, so we see here they're falling into a lot of uh, various idol worship. Continue, look at verse 25. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every bypasser to multiply your holler tree. And so we see there, it's not just committing adultery once, it's committing adultery with anyone who walks uh, past by them, right? And God has just given this language for them to see that, that this is terrible, this is abominable. Uh, two more here. Uh, look at verse uh, 20, 28. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. So after they played the harlot with the Egyptians, they're playing the harlot with another nation. Uh, we see here that they're not satisfied. They want to keep growing in their sinful actions. And if you keep going in verse uh, 30, it talks about languishing, and that means um, to be empty, to be despair, not satisfied. And, and God's saying, you see what the sin is leading you to? It's leading you to despair. It's, it's making you worse. And lastly, verse 32, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. You're forgetting God. You're forgetting the one who provided all things for you, the one who truly loves you, not these sins, not these false idols that aren't even real. And so... Um, just an example of spiritual adultery, how they have been unfaithful. And so James is calling the people of his audience right now that. That is how you are acting. And one more, if you know the story of Hosea, what happens there? Does anyone know the story of Hosea? Someone remind me here. Hosea, Gomer? Mm-hmm. Tell me, what happened? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, um, she took her, but then she couldn't give up her habits, so she went to another man. Hmm. But then 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. It obviously points to the gospel, but here they are, the people of Israel who love their raisin cakes, right? These sacred raisin cakes that basically were in worship to false idols. And they are just committing adultery after adultery. And at the end of the story, yeah, um, Hosea redeems her and obviously points to God redeeming his people. And so we're reminded there. Uh, of just adultery. And so ask yourself that. Imagine your wife or husband constantly cheating on you. I'm not saying just one night, I'm sorry, my bad, mistake. No, I'm talking about every night. Imagine that. That is what Israel was doing to God when they offered sacrifice to these false gods. They were so focused on their pleasures, um, on their prosperity, riches, and fame, right? They were distracted from the truth. And so they loved that which was associated with false gods, right? I mentioned raisin cakes. Um, that's what happens when you start to go away from God. You start to love uh, the world and you start to love the things the world loves. And so you become more like the world. And so just a reminder, this can happen to any one of us, right? We can be tempted to forget God and love the things of the world. We can be distracted with all the money we can make. We can begin to offer sacrifices maybe to other religions by being inclusive, right? We can start to argue maybe homosexuality isn't that bad, right? It's just another type of love. What if maybe your job was on the line and they told you, you need to say homosexuality is okay or you're a bigot and you're out of here. And so these are questions that you need to ask yourself. What would I do if I was in that position? We, we mentioned Daniel even though it was Ezekiel. What did uh, you know, the, the three friends of Daniel do uh, when it was their life on the line to worship a false image? They said no, and they were willing to get burned alive for it. And so we need to uh, observe if we are committing this spiritual adultery. Now, it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament also mentions of adultery. Uh, if you remember Jesus in Matthew twelve thirty nine, what does he call this generation? You evil and adulterous generation, right? These Jews, these Pharisees, religious elites were saying, we demand a sign. And Jesus said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of, uh, the, of Jonah, um, which is obviously his resurrection. But here they are, and this is what Jesus is calling them, you adulterous generation. You should be following God. If you loved God, you would love me, right? But they deny Jesus. They hate Jesus. They want what they want. And it's not Jesus. They should have bowed before the king in humility, but instead they often challenge Jesus. What did they love more? They loved their money, their religious traditions, right? Their fame, their popularity, more than God. Another example in Revelation 2.22 with the church of Thyatira, we see that there's a woman named Jezebel and the church there is tolerating this sexual immorality, is tolerating uh, eating things sacrificed to idols. And so what do we observe? That the church there is compromising in their relationship with God. And so God says he's going to judge Jezebel, in verse 22 if you read it there, and any of those who sleep with her, any of those who continue in practicing that false worship, they will also be judged. And so for a good question for us to consider is, Are we all in? Are we willing to repent of any idols in our hearts? So maybe some examples of idols could be sports, sex, success, right? We we just want uh, all these things and and we want it our way rather than God. I recently went to a conference with a group of men and 
One thing that stood out to me was when one of the preachers said, you love that which you can't stop talking about, right? So what have you been talking about lately? What has been on your lips or on your mind constantly? Is it God? We should often talk about God. That should be our joy, our delight. Do we love him like we say we do? Or have we been like an adulteress? All right, let's continue here with the next position. Uh, Friends of the world. We see that these people in James chapter 4 are not being like friends of God like Abraham was, but rather friends of the world. So as a friend of the world, you're not a blessed doer of the word, right? If you remember James chapter 127, we're called to be unstained by the world. And so how can you be unstained by the world if you're sleeping with the world, right? All you do and think about is what's going on uh, in this sinful uh, world. We know there's many examples of people who, who fell away from the faith. Now, they weren't true believers. Um, we believe in perseverance of the saints here. Uh, but there are people like uh, Demas, right, who was with Paul. And in 2 Timothy, it said that he loved this present world and deserted Paul. And so this is what happens uh, when people desert uh, God and desert the real friends that they had in the church and they cultivate a friendship with this world, one that would only result in pain. And so I want you to just be reminded of fake friendships. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, you don't have to go there, but if you want, go ahead. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we see here that he tells us, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or or what harmony does uh, Christ and Satan have? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And now, this verse is not to indicate that you can't talk to unbelievers, you can't do business with unbelievers. Uh, but what it's talking about is, is your fellowship, right? Your friendship, your true worship. Um, and if you're often hanging out with unbelievers, uh, it, it shows that you're, you're more aligned to their way of life, not so much uh, believers who want to live and glorify God. And so I kind of mentioned, mentioned this before, but I think it's good for us to think about how can we know that we're being friends of the world, right? Uh, one question we can ask ourselves is, where's your loyalty and commitment? Where is your loyalty and commitment? Um, what comes first, right? Ask yourself that. What comes first, my friends or my God? Maybe it's participating in sinful events, uh, maybe it's the way you act, right? You just talk, sound like an unbeliever. Uh, maybe it's worshiping an unbeliever's uh, God or idol, right? Maybe you have a couple friends that are Muslim or, or Mormon, but if they're sacrificing or if they're worshiping a false God and they're saying, hey, do this with us and it's in accordance to our religion and it's really worshiping our God, are you just going to say, yeah, you know what? It's not a big deal. I want to be inclusive. I, I like your God. You like my God. We could be friends. No, we need to draw the line. We need to say, I follow Jesus and him alone. Um, and so we need to ask ourselves, where's our loyalty? What are we committed to? All right, so James now is going to shift. If you look at James chapter 4, verse uh, 4, he's going to shift from the war within, right? That war in our flesh that we saw in verse 1. And he's going to talk about the war between God, 
right? There is no winning this war because you're going to be an enemy of God. So that means you need to submit to him and you need to surrender before you get wiped out. That's just a small preview for next week. Uh, And so how does James introduce this war with God? Look at verse 4. He says, therefore, uh, right before that, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God, right? That word is also enmity. Uh, This is similar to Genesis 3.15. If you remember what happens there with the curse of Satan um, and and of the woman, right? There will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, the seed and her seed. He will, um, you know, crush your head. You will uh, bruise his heel. And so the enmity is about the people that are prideful, the proud, and God. There is an enmity between them, hostility. And even with all the supposed benefits of this world, it does leave us in a terrible place. You are now an enemy of God, right? Um, What does that mean, to be an enemy of God? If you know that uh, Satan, the devil, right, he is an enemy of God, and we know his destination, the lake of fire. And so if you're on the team of the world, you're also on a team with Satan because that's the same destination that all enemies of God will have. God will crush them. And so we read that in Revelation 20. Uh, Those that do not repent will end up in the lake of fire, the same lake of fire that Satan is thrown into, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so that's the bad news, right? Those in that position will be judged. But there is good news, right? We're talking about the word enemies here. Jesus died for our sins so that we can be reconciled with God, according to Romans 5.10, even while we were enemies. And so there is good news that we can have forgiveness in Christ. And if you read Ephesians 2, you you remind yourself there what I once was. I was a child of wrath. Right? I walked according to the course of this world, uh, according to the prince of the power of the air, right, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you used to live in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, but God showed us mercy. Right? He can show mercy to the most prideful people. I think of Paul, who was very proud as one of those uh, religious elites who knew the scriptures, yet God humbled him, right? blinded him for three days, and he got saved shortly after. And so there is hope for the proud, and we're going to get into that a little bit more next week. But for for today, we need to keep in mind that if the proud do not repent, they only have wrath to look forward to. There's only condemnation for those at this moment. And so it's not a good position to be in. It's the worst place to be. All right, so any questions or comments about the positions of the proud? So we talked about adulteresses, friends of the world, enemies of God. Uh, Any questions or comments about that? Alrighty, so some applications for this portion of the text. Um, Ask yourself, do you compromise? Do you cheat on God? Right, let's be honest. Uh, We can easily fall into the temptation of loving this world. Uh, We can start to love even good things a little bit too much, right? Family and friends, they're great, right? But when we start putting them before God, uh, we have an issue. Maybe it's just your phone or your downtime after a long day of work. Do you just... Your focus is, I need to relax more than being in God's word. Of course, you know, there's a time to rest and relax, but if your priorities are right, you're going to make sure you devote your time with God before your chill time. The next one here is, if we continue being friends to the world, we are enemies of God, right? 
So what are we going to be, beloved? People that are committed to Christ or people that turn away from Christ? Those who turn away from God, well, God will turn away from them. It's that simple. You don't want anything to do with God? Okay, God will let you be. Um, and so that's the flip side of draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Well, if you want to continue being the enemy of God and follow your sinful ways, you're going to get what you deserve. All right, so let's continue here to our next verses. James chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. It reads, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so here we get one last challenge from James before his plead. We're going to learn the policies of God and how he deals with the proud and the humble. So yeah, the focus is mainly on the proud, but there are those that are humble, and we'll talk about the flip side of the proud here. So the fourth challenge here. We have another question. Uh, if you look in verse 5, or do you, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, right? Different translations have a question there, some don't. Um, so he's going to tell them, think about your current state right now. Uh, think about what's going on in your life. And, and one of the things he's going to bring up is, don't you know how important scripture is? Do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose? And so James chapter 2, verse 20 has the same word uh, in the Greek there, uh, empty. And so here, uh, it brings us back to the faith and works debate. Remember, faith without works is useless or dead or empty. Um, so in this verse, we're reminded that scripture is not dead or useless. It speaks the truth. And James will use scripture to, to support how friendship with the world does not please God. And so what should our response to this challenge be? Of course not, right? Scripture is precious. It is not in vain. Uh, we see that there were other challenges uh, right before this plead to the proud in James chapter 4, verse 7. First one was, who is wise in understanding, right? So James kind of puts you in the spotlight. All right, you think you're wise in understanding? Show it by your deeds of gentleness and wisdom. Uh, if you're a peacemaker, okay, but they weren't peacemakers. They were obviously committing much quarrels and conflict. So the second challenge was, okay, what's the source here? Who, who do you think you are? Where is all these conflicts and quarrels coming from? And so you're looking at the mirror there and saying, oh, wow, it's me. It's my sinful pleasures. And then the last challenge that we just spoke about was, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? And so James is just setting them up, getting ready, like, there's a problem here. It's you, and you need to repent, and, and we'll get there, like I said, next week. Um, all right, some interpretive issues here. Now, when you're translating it or studying this text here, um, we see that uh, there's two interpretive issues. The first one is human spirit or Holy Spirit. If you notice your translation in the NASB, it's a capital S, right, because the translators there uh, believe it should be the Holy Spirit. Uh, but you have other translations, the NIV, uh, that would argue it's the human spirit. Um, I'm also going to take that route. Uh, I believe it's the human spirit here. One, because there's no mention of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of James. And then number two, uh, if you look back uh, in chapter 2, verse 26, he was just talking about uh, the spirit, right? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Um, so I, I believe it's, it's the spirit here. Like I said, it's okay to disagree. Many commentators uh, disagree on this issue as well. Um, and then the second and I think more important issue here is, is it referring to human jealousy or divine jealousy? Um, this is really important because it could just 
you know, make the interpretation way different here. Um, and there's two options. Uh, the first one, there's more than two options, but these are the two main ones, I think. First one is the spirit which he has made to us dwell in us lust with envy. And so if we take that route, that it's talking about uh, the lust within us, the, the envy we have, I mean, it fits the context, right? Uh, he was just talking about sinful pleasures, quarrels and conflicts, where does it come from? Um, and so then afterwards, it, it gets, but there's greater grace. And so there's greater grace for those with this huge problem, which is the lust and envy that they have within them. But the second option, which I prefer, is talking about uh, he jealously, this is God, jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. And so some might be thinking, well, wait, wait, wait. Jealousy, didn't we just say that was bad, right? Talking about bitter jealousy. Um, how can God have this jealousy? I mean, James just set it up where it was a bad thing. Uh, like I said, I would argue that in the context of speaking about spiritual adultery, adulteresses, well, how does God feel about that? God has this divine jealousy, and we see that throughout Scripture, um, uh, that he has this love for us. And so it also would fit the context because there is this greater grace. Um, God is able to love those he's chosen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I kind of felt like it probably wasn't the best interpretation. Um, it's talking more about just this, because the, then you have, okay, what's the subject of the, of the verse? And, and so, yeah, there's an argument there that it's the Spirit in us. Obviously, God loves the Spirit, tr Trinity, right? Um, but, yeah, like I said, it gets dicey. So there's uh, one commentator who said this is the hardest New Testament verse to translate in the whole Bible, right? The, the hardest New Testament verse to translate. And so there's going to be disagreement. Either way, you try to kind of like find it out in the Greek. It's, it's not easy. Um, but we, we still get some truth there. Uh, if, if it did say, let's say what Na the NASB says here, uh, or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. Um, then there really isn't anything about our sinful nature. It's more uh, focus on, on, you know, obviously God, because the Spirit is dwelling in us, and so uh, He wants us to obey Him because we're the temple of God. Uh, we ought to be holy. And so, yeah, there is, there is some, uh, I guess, good points in that interpretation as well. But let's continue here just for time. So we're talking about the policies of God. And, and so there are things that God does, right? There's a way that God goes about uh, his business, if you want to say. There's one in divine jealousy. He loves you. He, he cares about you. He has this divine jealousy. We'll get into that. Uh, he is a giver of grace, and he's a resister of pride, right? He hates arrogance. And so uh, we're going to talk about each one here. And so since we brought up jealousy, uh, Nancy, I think we'll maybe answer that question a little bit better here. And so the first policy of God we find at the end of verse 5 is that he is a jealous God, right? God who placed man's spirit, lowercase, in him at creation longs for its total loyalty and devotion to him. And so there's no room for compromise if we say we follow God. 
Remember what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, for anyone who wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So it's really an all or nothing scenario. It's, it's similar to when you say, I do, when you get married, right? You may say you love your wife, but if you're cheating on her, what are you really saying? I love myself more, right? The Old Testament imagery of God as the spouse of his people in verse 4 is really the key in understanding verse 5. So we observe here why flirtation with the world is such a serious matter by bringing to mind the jealousy of the Lord, which demands total, unwavering allegiance from the people with whom he has joined himself. And we're called not to be double-minded in our relationship with God. We're called to be fully committed. Okay, so let's talk about the jealousy, right? It's, it's similar to righteous anger. Um, we know that when God gets angry, it's not sinful. And so when God gets jealous, it's not sinful. Um, why? Well, everything belongs to God. None of it belongs to us, right? Uh, he created us. We are his creatures. Sometimes it's hard for us to think about, well, why is God allowed to do something like this and I'm not allowed to do Because we're not God, okay? That's one quick answer. Uh, but think of it this way. God does not let uh, the world flirt with his wife, right? Would any of you men let a guy flirt with your wife and just sit there and smile? Oh, go ahead. No big deal. No. Uh, and so some examples of jealousy of the Lord, if you look throughout the Bible, Exodus 20, verse 5, in the Ten Commandments, what does God say? He is a jealous God, right? Do not make false images. Do not bow down and worship these idols. I am a jealous God, right? And there's consequences too when you do that, uh, when you disobey God. Uh, and if you read in chapter 34, verses 12 to 17, let's go there actually. Chapter 34, I think this might really hit it home here. Go to Exodus 34, verse 12. If you got it, say amen. All right. So notice here, talking about the covenant being renewed. Look at verse 12 here. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or will become a snare in your midst, right? They're going to the promised land and there's going to be uh, different people with different idols and, and lots of leftover idols. Look at this. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim, right? These are false gods that they're worshiping. Uh, and then it says, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might take a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot, again, the whole spiritual adultery, with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of this sacrifice. And then it's talking about how your sons and daughters might intermingle and also worship their gods. Do not do this. And so we see here um, that God is a jealous God. And, 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 you know, it's also for our good. What is his jealousy doing? It's protecting us from following after the world. Um, it's protecting us from being damned to hell when we follow these false gods. And so I really just want to challenge you with Joshua 24. If you remember there, what does Joshua do with the people of God? I don't know, maybe you got this on your coffee table or, or something, uh, you know, up there in a nice sign. Joshua 24, 19. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to serve? Is it going to be the idols, the false images, or is it going to be God? Make up your mind. And of course, we hear that they, of course, we're going to follow God. We're going to follow God, 
um, our allegiances to him, and then you get into the book of Judges, right? And they're not following God. Um, so who will you serve? Will you serve God and obey him or other false idols? We're also warned in Deuteronomy 4, 24, that God is a consuming fire, right? He's a jealous God. May we not forget our relationship with him and chase after idols. All right, let's continue here in James chapter 4, verse 6, coming to a close here. I love this, but he gives greater grace. He gives a greater grace. Um, even for those that are acting like adulteresses, he gives a greater grace if you repent. And so we're talking about this grace. The word there is great, extraordinary grace. Um, and everyone who's a Christian has a story of grace because your, your testimony right, is filled with grace because you are a great sinner. Everyone has a great testimony because they have a great Savior. And so, yes, your sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Uh, I like this song by Sovereign Grace. It's marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount I'm poured, that where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And so let that truth sink in. God's grace is great. Now, if we interpret verse 5 to mean sinful longings of the human spirit, right, that option one, then greater grace would suggest the ability and willingness of God to overcome sinfulness. But if we interpret it, verse 5, I believe, is the better interpretation that God's jealousy for his people, then what James is doing here is reminding us of God's grace that is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed on us by that jealousy. Augustine, he says, God gives what he demands. And so, I believe God has given us the ability to love him with our whole hearts, right? But it's only possible by his grace. We need to depend on him if we're going to grow and, and obey him as he calls us to do. Now, I mentioned in Ephesians uh, that we're saved by grace, right? And here we're reminded that we can follow him by grace. And so we need to depend on him. God has given us the ability to surrender, to surrender completely to love him. Now, throughout the book of James, I have a couple of verses here. I believe we see an example of how God gives grace, but he gives grace to specific people, if you notice, in the book of James. In James chapter 1, verse 9, he gives it to the lowly, right? He is going to exalt the lowly. He doesn't exalt the humble. They are actually going to be humiliated. And so God gives grace to the lowly. That's those that are humble, poor in spirit. Then if you look in James chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, we read about how God gives us good gifts. And one of those, of course, is grace. And, and we see that in verse 18, how in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we will be a first fruits kind uh, of his creatures. And so we see there that God is showing us grace by giving us a new life in Christ. And then lastly, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, we observe God's course of action and how he chooses the poor, right? And again, this is not really focusing on uh, the poor, financial poor, but the, those that are poor in spirit, those in their hearts that, that understand they're sinners before God and they need a Savior. And so God chooses the poor. He chooses the humble. And so we remember in Matthew uh, 5 that those that are poor in spirit, they will have the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, right here in verse 6, God is going to clearly state, God gives grace to the humble. And right, God gives grace to the humble. It's those God gives grace to. 
All right, last one here, guys. The last policy of God. Uh, and this one's of judgment. Remember, there's another part of that verse. God gives grace to the humble, but God is opposed to the proud. And so before I dive into God's opposition or rejection, I want you to look with me to Proverbs 3.34. This will probably be our last verse. Go to Proverbs 3.34. Many believe this is what James is referring to here. Giving us some wisdom from the book of wisdom. Proverbs 3.34. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And so here we have that same principle. God is giving grace to the humble or the afflicted, the poor in spirit, but he is scoffing at the scoffers, right? Those that are proud are, are scoffers. They're the ones that mock God. They hate God. They are the ones that are friends of the world. And later they're going to be described as double-minded or sinners in James chapter 4, verse 9. And so let me remind you of what it means to be prideful, just because we're talking about those that are proud, right? Uh, pride is to show oneself above others. It's that I'm better than you attitude. It's really all about self-glorification. I don't need God. I don't need your rebuke, criticism, or counsel. I don't need to go to church. I just need my way. I don't need to serve. In fact, you need to serve me, all right? And, and we see that that's a person that is proud. I like the language in Psalm 18, 27. Uh, it states, for you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you obeys, right? God doesn't approve those with the superior complex. And so we need to be reminded that we are but dust compared to God. And so who are we to act like we're in control, right? God can take us home just like that if he wanted to. And so we need to remember that, yes, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And, and when you picture God's uh, opposition, just picture God being ready to battle, right? This is a scary place to be in. There's God, here's you, and he is ready to battle you if you are proud. Um, it reminds me of Revelation 19 where God, uh, Christ is coming back ready to wage war, right, and judge with that sword. And so, in other words, God is an active antagonist of the proud and self-sufficient, right? And so there's only condemnation for those that God will resist. So is that it? Remember, there is hope even for the proud. We'll talk about that later. James is preparing his audience for the solution. He's about to call them to repent. We'll get into that more next week. But given this truth that obviously God is going to um, oppose and resist the proud, we need to uh, tell ourselves, and that means we need to humble ourselves, right? Um, so here's the application for us as we close here. Do you care? <laughs> Do you really care? Will you correct your heart in humility? Given this truth that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, we should make it our aim in life to live a humble life, right? If we care about our relationship with God, we would flee pride. The last application here is if we continue in pride, God will be in conflict with us. You see, God hates the arrogant. We know that the proud will be punished for eternity, and there is nothing better than knowing if God is for us, who can be against us? But there is nothing worse than knowing that you are going to be judged by God if he's against you. All right, let's conclude here. Uh, we learned the positions of the proud, right? Uh, they are those that go against God, right? They commit spiritual adultery and their sin will not be overlooked. God will discipline or punish those who do not repent. 
and the policies of God, we also learn about his commitment, compassionate, and how he will condemn uh, those who love themselves and their idols. And so next week, we're going to attack the heart of the letter here with the plea to the proud. There's going to be 10 imperatives, right? 10 commands of what you got to do. Um, and they're mainly all to repent and to turn to Christ. And so 